0: he just didn't want to take responsibility for the shame that this is what he did with this kid um and that, you know your daughter was raped in the name of jesus you know who that's a very powerful thing and here they are these christians and they sent me to a place to get raped in the name of jesus that's a so they didn't want me to talk about it so they as much as they could they would just shame me and i was the kid that went away so you gotta think i'm coming back into the world i didn't know anything that was going on i didn't know anything in the news that was going on i didn't know who what president i didn't know uh you know things normal things that everybody knew songs tv shows pop culture. Uh, what it was like to be a kid all those things got stolen from me you know your first date homecoming um just all those things they were stolen from me i was i was hurt and i was angry
1: Good evening and welcome to my second episode on the Sean Outward True Crime channel. Uh, This evening I have Danielle who is a survivor of Freedom Village in Seneca Lake, New York in the United States. Freedom Village is the Christian fundamentalist teen residential programme where Danielle is a very harrowing story should I say and Danielle was a victim and witness the suicide of her classmate and multiple suicide attempts, as well as escape attempts. She was sexually assaulted by Pastor Brother on multiple occasions, as well as other staff members while there. In addition to the sexual assault, she recalls, was forced to eat horse manure, kept, keep a trash can on her head in class, constantly locked in solitary confinement, the white room, which we'll get to a little later, Baptisms in raw sewage, beatings by staff and classmates, and fed spoiled rotten food daily. In 2020, after financial ruin and a failed relocation attempt to South Carolina, the facility finally closed its doors. Before we begin, under UK law, we have to ask you, Danielle, do you waive your right to anonymity? Yes, I do. Oh, fantastic. So we're going to go back to the start and talk about where is it you grew up?
0: I grew up actually in uh, Maryland, right by DC, right outside of DC and in, in between DC and Annapolis, Maryland. Um, I grew up with my mother and father and I had a little sister who was younger than me. And um, we were just a regular middle class family. Uh, My parents were quite young. Uh, My mother had me at 18 and they um, had their own business. So they kind of struggled with starting um, that and working as husband and wife together in their own business. And um, they didn't really have outside family too much and outside um, resources as much. So they started getting into a church to find family and friends and support that way. Mm. And, um, so, you know, it was just very, my very isolated. Um, we went to school, church, um, uh, and all our friends were in the church. So we kind of just hung out with people there, but I had a learning disability and they couldn't figure out what to do with that. And how to help me with that. I was diagnosed with um, dyslexia and a couple other learning disabilities as well. And so in the school, church school that my parents had me in, uh, they did not know how to teach me. So they thought that I was being rebellious because I couldn't learn simple things that other people could because I just learned slightly different and uh, so I looked a little bit more rebellious at a younger age when really it was just a learning problem Um, and it caused a lot of pressure on my family because you know you wanted to brag about your children and when your children are not doing well in the school everybody knows everything about everybody. Um, When I uh turned about, I would say, about 11. They no longer could keep me in that church school because I was so far behind. I didn't have much of an education. I was still like what a seven or eight-year-old would know in the United States at age 11. So they put me in a public school, regular public school, which was a huge culture shock for me. I was um, very naive and young-minded going into puberty too, so it was a lot of hormonal stuff, and um, I uh, saw a lot of things for my first time that I never saw and had to adapt to it, and at the same time, my mother winded up um, having a little bit of a mental breakdown at that same time because she came from an abusive family that she left when she was young. So, my father put her into a mental facility to get help, so she was no longer with our family, so it was my father, me, and my sister and we just really uh, we really were just trying to exist at the time without Mom there and knowing that uh you know this isn't normal. Mom's in a mental hospital acting weird, and um uh, Dad's very angry and abusive and uh, taking out a lot of frustration out on me, um, and so at around this time, um, the school, the public school that I was going to, was a middle school, but it was connected to a high school, and a lot, it was in the middle of a kind of a neighborhood, a whole big neighborhood. So a lot of a lot of people hung out around this school, and I was walking home one day from that school and, um, was assaulted. And I didn't know things like that could happen. I wasn't prepared. I was on a trail, um, walking back. There's a lot of little trails that could lead you off to the different neighborhoods. And one of the older, um, uh, teenagers, and I was, uh, 12 at the time assaulted me. And when I came home, my dad noticed that, um, you know, I was beat up pretty bad and my clothes were messed up. I told him that, um, some girls did it to make fun of me cause I couldn't do the schoolwork. Cause I was too uh-huh. embarrassed to tell him at the time what really happened. Cause I thought he would, uh, because it was a sexual assault and I was always taught you're supposed to save that for marriage. And, um, I felt dirty, and I didn't understand what just happened, so I didn't want to explain that to my father. I started um, hiding it and, it, and uh, really feeling scared a lot, crying a lot, and my parents put me on some medication and thinking that that would help, and it, I had a bad reaction to the medication and winded up trying to um, hurt myself at 12 because I had to keep quiet. After uh, that happened, my mother was home from the hospital, and it it was too much for her to deal with a 12-year-old having problems. And I told them about the the rape and um, what happened to me. And um, so instead of their way of helping me was to ask the church cause they didn't know what to do. My mother was just in a hospital and my dad said, I have to choose between helping you or your mother. And right now, uh, you know, I need to work on helping your mom. So the church found a place for me to go to, uh, because my parents didn't have any more money after paying for my mother to go away and get help. Um, So they found a place for me to go to in upstate New York, um, about five, I would say about five and a half hours away from where I was used to growing up. They uh, found this place out and quickly um, within, I would say, first before I went there, they were kind of toying with that idea looking into it. It looked like, on from what they could see, that it was like a place where kids can go to play with animals and be in nature and be away from this big city world and learn about God and have structure. And so they were toying around with this idea. They didn't tell me about this at this point. They decided to um, have me go to a church members, family members house who lived in the country in a goat farm. And they had a bunch of children that in a smaller home on a goat farm. And a lot of the girls lived in the basement, an unfinished basement. And it it was quite a scary place. I was only there for a couple of days and I freaked out and had to leave. And because it was very crowded and I was very different for me. It was an Amish area. So when I left there within 24 hours, they had me sent to that place that they were um, looking at, which was called Freedom Village, USA, a home for troubled teens. Um, Mm. And at this point, my only real issues were just... um, Depression and, uh, you know, a couple of suicide attempts and uh, figuring out how to handle that emotion from what happened to me and also my family breaking apart and the stuff that was going on at home and the learning disability as well. So they kind of promised my parents a place they could get me in school there they could uh, teach me about animals and all sorts of stuff. So it looked good enough for them. And they dropped, had me uh, said we were going to go somewhere and to pack up and that if I did good and I had no choice. So uh, we packed up real quick and um, winded up in a, the mountains. And it was very different from the city life I was used to. Um, I was in a lot of shock in this moment because there was so much change in my life. And I was still very young. I was still very young. I would just turned 13 um, just getting my period changing, but still I was a smaller child, very petite um, and uh, a very shaky, nervous kid. And we, When I went there, uh, you go into this administration building and your parents fill out a paper about you. Who are your friends? Who are your relatives? What problems did they have with you? What do they think that you were doing uh, that was bad? Uh, What uh, fights have you had about? What kind of music did you listen to? things very personal things and things that they could figure out about you like who your best friends were or um uh you know who did they who did, who would the child call if they were um scared things of that sort
1: almost like a psychology report from the day yes, dot
0: exactly right. yep and then they made you watch a video of um that explained where you were at and that you were about to go through a change and uh, that, you know, you were very naughty for being here, that, you know, what you've done to this moment has gotten you here, so you better hold on and get ready to submit. Um, They also put, my parents put in there, um, I was very close with a friend prior to going there who stood up for me a lot and said that she was getting hurt. And um, she protected me. She was a good ally friend. She was she was a very beautiful girl with a loud voice. And she was a friend of mine. She stood up for me and she would tell my parents, she needs help. She needs help. And not what you're not condemnation, not yelling at. Uh, she has a learning problem and she just needs a little bit of love. Well, they told in that psychology report when I went to Freedom Village, they put that I was gay with her. And I'm oh, 13. Really? I don't know what gay was. Maybe I did inappropriate things. We had kissed and were cuddled a lot, slept together. You know, young uh, girls that felt very alone in a world with parents that were not very healthy. And we really leaned on each other but my parents' religion believed that being gay would send me right to hell. And my mother was just so scared of me going to hell constantly. It was a huge fear of hers and that, um, you know, she'd always uh, be worried about. So they sent, they gave a lot of personal information to the leaders at Freedom Village about me. So Right off the bat, um, they know exactly the right things to say to you, to scare you and to, uh, intimidate or, um, and when you go in there, you, um, have to be stripped down and you're separated from your family right away and you're not allowed to talk to them for the first three months you're there. Um. The first three months are very important because that's where they indoctrinate you a lot. That's where they, it's like they really push you hard in those first three months. And most people, if within the first four months, they know if you're going to drink the Kool-Aid or if you're just not for some reason and they get rid of you. Right. So um, for some people who just would not, submit or just would keep running away or would um my parents also when they were there had to sign over custody to um them so at this point they had custody of me did they not find that remotely bizarre they they didn't question him, they just thought, oh, he's uh, this is what he does, so he must need this for some reason. He must need this because we're not there with her and we're not able to check up on her. So they thought that it was more for reasons for him to take care of us better. Oh, god, uh, at least that's what they told me. I, I mean, I'm a mother, I would see that as bizarre, but in church communities, I think that they just naturally trust people very easy and on their word in a lot of church communities. Yeah. So um, from that, uh, they, we would go and I had to wear, first of all, the dress code. When you go there, you can only wear dresses, um, long dresses, oh, way below the knees, or to the ankles. You can uh, not show anything from your collarbone down, so nothing more than that. So you only had a couple clothes you could wear, um, women. Girls and boys were separated on the campus. There was one leader, um, of Fletcher Brothers. Um, And then what he kind of ruled. Pastor was the one who taught everything, made all the rules, said everything that goes on. And um, he was just basically the complete leader there. Everything was run by what he said. There was nobody who would even question him. We would have done anything for him there were uh, everybody there thought of him as close to being as god so you wanted to please him you wanted to make him happy uh you wanted to get his attention in any way kids were just dying to get his attention to have a moment to, like a celebrity like you would mm. look at as a celebrity you're taken away from the world there's no there's um uh, one room with the phone in it in the girls' dorm, which is in the office, which is locked up. And, uh, there's no TV. There's no radios. There's no, you're not allowed to have any books. You're not allowed to have access to the outside world. Mm. And you're on a lake, and they're, the only thing behind you is a huge lake, and they have guards on the side of you. Um... They had guards with guns that he would follow him and that would be at the um, front of the when you would drive in like a guard. But the weird thing I found out going in there is that um, the staff that they had helping, which they didn't have much staff members, but the staff that they had there were former students, were former people. They never left he would teach Doomsday. He would teach a lot of things about, um, he would marry you in and want you to become a lifer. It was called and pastor would find a person in the program that, that you would match up well with. And then once you were there for a certain amount of time, or you were at a certain age, he would have you start working for him for free basically, just to be able to stay on the property. And you were so scared to leave that he would um, indoctrinate you so much the first year that at this point you don't have much of a mind of your own. So a lot of the staff members that were watching over us were people who had been there for a couple years already and were just like you, but just learned, moved up in the program, so they were willing to do whatever he said. Uh, it was, uh, so everybody kind of basically lived on this property. Um, there was horses and, uh, chickens and other things like that to keep us busy. But most of the time, um, uh, we just had a Bible. We weren't allowed to talk very much, uh, we had to do a lot of uh, classes that taught us what he would want us to teach. He, uh, we weren't allowed to say things like "if you ever said you wanted to go home." I mean, you were, bad things would really happen to you there. You can that was one of the worst things you could ever say. You would be isolated, and he would be so scared that it would uh, that you would infect the others, and then they would want to go home. So you would have to be on isolation and go into a room all by yourself until uh, and listen to his preaching until you could um, until you could say that you were wrong and you repented. So there was, I mean, all the way to where they shamed you when you would get in trouble there. It was your own peers that you would get in trouble with. Um, Your peers were taught to. Uh, tell on you that's how you got ahead so it was a culture of let me find something wrong with somebody that they're doing or thinking that I can run and tell pastor about so that I can get ahead and because the, Be closer, is the closer I am ahead the closer mm-hmm. I am to staff the closer he's not uh the closer I am to pa- pastor and then I'm not in trouble and the punishments there were very harsh the punishments were extremely painful. There was um, a lot of different punishments there.
1: Are we able to talk in, mm-hmm. in as depth as you can about some of the punishments?
0: Yes. Um, so the I'll say that the first three months you're there, you're on. You come in on a level. There, there's levels like there's um, C level, E level. Um, PC, which PC means Pastors Club. Then there's Junior Staff, Senior Staff, um, and then there's just Regular Staff. So you come in on a C level, and uh, and below C level is a um, is a No level. No level means that you are on um, punishment is anytime you're awake at all. You, uh, so the first three months you come in on C, but you have to, um, do every, it's basically impossible to stay on that because they really put you through a lot. The first three months you can't, like I said, you can't talk to your family when you write a letter to somebody, they have to, it can only go to, um, uh, Certain people that are on the list, they have to read it first. Any outgoing mail has to be read first. When you do make a phone call, um, I think you're not allowed to call anybody until you were, until you were there for, um, I would say about, uh, I think the first, almost the first month, you weren't allowed to call anybody, and there would be somebody on the other line. They're listening the whole time. And if you said anything they didn't want you to say, they would take the phone and say, oh, I think she's manipulating you. We better get off the phone now. And so if you told anybody anything that was going on, like I remember sitting there the first time talking to my family, just wanting to scream out, like you have no idea what this place is. Um, They're thinking, like, have you seen the horses yet? Have you done anything fun on that pretty lake? they didn't understand. I was there a year before I ever got to see a horse. I wanted to see a horse so bad, but that was a privilege to even look at a horse. And um, we had to do things that were shaming. And we had to, he constantly shamed and feared us and in, in, in front of our peers too. And we it was always in front of everybody to humiliate you. So every morning you'd wake up with the chore and then we'd have a chapel, meaning where he would read out your um, write-ups. Everybody, every kid's write-ups in front of everybody in church every morning. And um, when you became uh, on PC level, you're allowed to write up people. And if not, then you're allowed to at least go tell a staff member so they can write people up. So it was. It made for a very controversial uh, lifestyle where you were just constantly scared. Who is going to say something about me? Bad. I better not say the wrong thing because you couldn't listen to music. You couldn't um, have a thought that wasn't biblical or his teaching. Even if it you thought disagreed with something he believed in the Bible, it still was wrong if if pastor didn't believe it. Um, so we weren't allowed to say even certain things that were in the Bible clear as day. But if pastor didn't believe that, that's what it meant, and he twisted it, then, uh, then we weren't allowed to talk about it or uh, even have a discussion about anything like that. So uh, the first three months you're there, you're really broken down. It's kind of like where they really break you down a lot. Uh, They isolate you a lot. You're not really supposed to talk very much. You have a big sister who's always with you, who's watching over you, so they can tell on you if you're stepping out of line or if you cry or if you're writing something down. Um, We were taught to bring in money, because we were he would tell us how lucky we were to be there that he he saved our lives that without him we would be out in the world and we would be dying and um, nobody wants us our family doesn't want us we are rejected children nobody will believe us nobody will listen to us we are his children now to do with what he wants in the way that he wants to do it And it sounds so weird to an outsider, but to a child that just left their family, it's survival. It's how you survive. It's okay, well, even if I don't agree with this, I guess I have to do this to survive. And there was some people who would stand up and and finally have enough you know, and I was even one of them at time. I think everybody has a moment where they break. You know, because it's just that bad there, that everybody has a certain moment where they just break and lose it. You can only be quiet and be beaten and be uh, degraded so much till you, uh, as a, as a child, and not feel safe until you eventually have a breakdown. And they know exactly what to do as soon as you have that break right, breakdown. They put you in a room. And you don't, you know, you don't get fed and you have to stay in that room until uh pastor comes and visits you. And then usually the first time he comes and visits you in the room, it's he's yelling at you and hitting you and scolding you for whatever it is that you did uh, that sinned against him and the Lord. So sinning against him was almost worse than sitting against the Lord. And, uh, you know, it could just be as simple as saying, I want to go home or somebody hurt me over here and they shouldn't have done that. Well, you shouldn't be such a bad kid that you had to come here and you're mine. So if you weren't such a, you know, piece of crap in this place, then maybe it would matter if that happened to you, but here it doesn't matter. So be quiet and get back to work and do something to make some money for this place. You're lucky you got a roof over your head and you're not in a mental hospital shaking. And he would give us, um, he would, it was fear tactics all the time, always talking about anybody who ever left. You can never leave peacefully. It was always, if anybody left, there was a big, um, it was a big ordeal. It was always a big fight or shame. We had to be like, oh, shame on you. Not talk like Shunam, Turn our back almost towards them. Um, not talk to them. And then we would hear stories about them. Oh, they were, they're were they in jail now. Or they died. or Sometimes a lot of those come to find out were things he was just making up. Of course. To scare us. But at the time... You know, you don't realize that. You're thinking he's telling you the truth. You know, how can he get away with all this stuff? He was always talking about how people... He was very paranoid, thinking that people were out to get him because he borrowed a lot of money from people. and So he he was very paranoid a lot, had always a guard with him, always somebody watching over his back. We would We were taught to reach out to others to get them to adopt us as teenagers, like adopt a teen program, it was called, to where we could save America's youth. So he wanted us to go to retired older couples that were maybe more uh, naive and uh, really just wanted to see America's youth do well. So, you know, sponsor us and send us money. Well, we never saw that money. That money wasn't so we could have a, uh, some clothes or go out to have an, uh, a piece of pizza or something like that. You know, it it wasn't for those things. It was so a lot of the, he was living a very lavish lifestyle of going to uh, the Bahamas, the um, Virgin Islands um he was he had private plane rides. he had the best horses, the most um and we would have to take care of them for him um He had a very beautiful home and lavishing cars and we lived in a old dorm that was the windows were cracked to where we had to put blankets and with thumbtacks put blankets on top of the windows a couple of them just to keep warm and put a blow dryer on the floor and we would you know there would be two or three in a room and huddle up to the blow dryer on the floor to keep warm because it would be so cold you know um there uh there was the bathrooms we had to take a shower it was a three shower heads but the size of like Uh, a little bit bigger than your average shower. And we, we had to take showers with the monitor, but we weren't allowed to touch a girl. If we touched a girl ever, there was a six inch rule. You never could touch anybody. Uh, If we touch somebody, so we're taking showers. We have to wash ourselves eight times. Cleanliness is next to godliness. We had to be clean. Uh, And we were supposed to be women of character and be ready for our husbands we were taught to be ready for our husbands be ready to serve because we were there to serve God's men which was pastor mm-hmm. cuz and you know the main punishments that were there that you that we went through the most was some on no level uh, about three or four times a day, you'd have to get a log. Um, and the girls, their road was right in front of pastor's house. And you put your arms together, like from middle finger to middle finger and out as wide as you can, like circle wise. I don't know if you can see it, but um, as big as you can make with the circle. Yes, there you go. Find yeah. a log that big and put it on your arms like this and walk up and down a road um, carrying that wood. And you'd have to do it for hours, whether it was snowing, raining, a snowstorm, whatever. And if you dropped it, your hours started all over again. You couldn't go uh-huh. pee, you couldn't go to the bathroom, you couldn't excuse yourself, you couldn't adjust your own sweater or your, put your gloves on better. Uh, you'd have to go at like 4 o'clock in the morning. And that, it, it was to break you down. These are um, things that they used to do even in Nazi camps. Like, things like this. It's to mentally, it's mind-numbing punishment to just keep you, uh, constantly in fear and, and orderly and he liked watching it he would ha- the girls did it right in front of his house and he would sit right in front of there and watch us walk up and down the road carrying a log and just come out and yell at us sometimes or um and uh we weren't allowed to when you're on no level you're not allowed to uh you have to sit Facing a wall while you're eating, and you're not—you're only allowed to get certain portions of food. You're—you have to get the least food, like when it's the coldest after everybody else has eaten. Uh, there, uh, there was such distance between you and everybody. Um, there, you also had to do more chores. You had to, uh, you know, do a Everybody was assigned different chores throughout the day. A lot of the, even for us kids there, the schooling, we didn't, none of the school was credited. So kids are going there learning school stuff, thinking, Oh, I'm going to graduate this year. And half of them didn't even never graduated. None of the schooling was real. Everything was fake. So some of these kids who think, Oh, I have a high school diploma. No, Hmm. when they left or, When Pastor would kick him out or if um, some of the ones who made it out, they did not. It was an ACE program. It It was a program where you picked up a book and if you did enough of these books by yourself, then it added up to be, you know, a credit. But he was never um affiliated to be a school. He didn't have the right documentations and to be a school. So therefore what nothing was credited. So all the through the two hours a day that kids are doing work, actual school work, because there was only two hours a day um dedicated to it, uh it we didn't even they didn't even get any um reward for it. They didn't learn anything. They couldn't go out in the regular world and get a job because it looked like they just were not in school. And it, it was just well, I do wonder
1: how he managed to get away for it that long, if that would be in the case that it wasn't even credited. I'm sorry. It's quite shocking how he was able to get away with it for so long, being that it's not even credited.
0: Yes it he got a it's quite shocking how he got away with a lot of things for so long uh, mm. you know he had he had a great lawyer team he had um, there is more and more that I'm digging up and others are digging up that show how deep this goes and how sick this goes and um, how he was able to... Hide in the system for so long um, and be protected. Um, you know, there's a lot of religious organizations that protected him. Uh, a, a lawyer from the uh, Christian bar, you know, ones that would go up against people that would say anything bad about him and threaten to sue you. So you didn't never wanted to go against pastor. You never wanted to be that person that would go up against pastor. He had too many friends. He talked about that he was good friends with Ronald Reagan and he was his spiritual advisor. I mean, he had these grand um, delusions that we all believe. We didn't know what was truth. I'm not. We're children. He's got he owns this, he owns us now. So whatever he says, we really believe, you know, whether it sounds stupid to me now. I mean, obviously now I look back and I'm like, how did other people believe this? How do we believe this? But, you know, you got to remember his audience is uh, scared children and the adults that come in to help him, they're more very... They're the type of people who were really looking to be a part of something. They were kind of lost themselves. They wanted to be a part of something bigger than them, and they needed to find purpose. And he was that type of person that could spot that out in people and say, "Hey, I got you know something for you to do that would make a difference in this world, and I'm gonna help you out if you come work for me and do as I say. I'll help you." Write a book one day, you know, or I'll help you uh be tell everybody that you helped save America's youth and you could be part of this next big thing I'm gonna start over here in Canada you know I mean there was other freedom villages he was trying to start he started a freedom village in um Washington state tried to start one in Canada too um to but they were all not real it was all a way for him to get money i i know i just met the other day with um a person who was in freedom village with me that would turned into staff and went to the freedom village west that was supposed to be a home for trouble teens too that people were sending money for and supporting what really it was just a trailer with the phone and a big cover-up. Right. And, you know, he got away with it. He had a television show. He had a radio show. He had um, mailing. He had Eagle, um, it was called Eagle Printing Press, where we would have to go and fold up, make lies up about our life before saying we would be these terrible uh children if it wasn't for pastor. We would probably be, In a Satanistic cult, uh, we would be hurting people. We would be on drugs. But luckily, pastor came and saved our lives so we could be with Jesus eternally because pastor got us and keeps us safe. So we would write this out and send it out to retired older couples that want to see, you know, uh, that want to leave behind something good for Uh, the next generation
1: Mm. and it was a way to to... bring
0: in money and Mm. whoever brought in more money for pastor got rewarded better and didn't get hurt didn't get abused as much you know
1: yes and i wanted to point out to the audience that he currently has a podcast doesn't he
0: yes he actually Mm. has a podcast now that he still is collecting money from so that's what's really interesting is that you know, he's still trying to make money off us. Of and his son, his son, the apple doesn't fall fall far from the tree because his son who started a program just like uh you know, a cult just like Freedom Village and uses children, he's been arrested two times this I believe this year, for um for domestic abuse on a minor uh, and other, I think another sexual kind of deviant charge or voyeurism or something like that. But he's, these people should not be working with kids. They, it, it should stop. And now we're actually getting a voice. We're not scared now that it's, it's not been up and running for a couple years now. I think it's been almost like three years. Um, that it's not running. So we're finally getting the strength to talk about it.
2: When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed and we start our day with Coro Snacks. Coro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to the customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free-from-baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. Oh, these Syrian pumpkin seeds from coro are amazing. I have them on my cheese and toast every morning. Have you Have been getting into them, Jen?
1: Yes, and all the health benefits it brings.
2: <laughs> Lashings of them.
1: Right. Pop this in the oven then.
2: So what makes Coral special in comparison to others? cares about sustainability. Their bulk packs save on packaging material compared to small single packs. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor.
0: After all this time, we're finally starting to feel like he's getting older. He's in his 70s, so he's not as strong. But his son took over a lot of his work and but when he lost the village that's what really made us feel like he lost his strength and now we're not as scared of him he's not this big scary man that will ruin us and ruin our life forever you know
1: i I mean and and also pointing out you're currently in seneca lake um about five minutes from the campus i mean with your partner who's Seems to be incredibly strong Your rock. Um,
0: yes, I'm very grateful. Yeah.
1: And we're hopefully going to show the audience some of the, the campus at some point this evening.
0: Yes, I'm but... really excited to do that. I think it'll give a good visual to, you know, uh, what it was like. We were stuck on this property. This was a lot, our life. A lot of us didn't leave it for years.
1: Mm. It was a me...
0: cult. It was a cult. In every sense of the word, uh, we had a leader. We would have killed, died, given up our bodies, given up our freedom to protect him, to make him happy. We believed he was from God, and we believed all his teachings. Um, he, we believed he was all we had. That he was that being close to him was being close to God. And that made us feel safe for kids that did not feel very safe and wanted. And he used that to hurt us and shame us um, and do things. Like uh, the first time I wanted to see the horses, uh, I was there for a year and I finally was able to see the horses and I, I was so excited. It was winter time, it was January. And I get to go see them, and a the couple of the horse barn girls are there, and he, pastor um, was there, and he, he told some of the girls to go, and he told two to stay behind. And he said, listen, here's what we're going to do. We're going to teach Danielle about what God wants me to teach her is about some humility. And I'm I was more younger than a lot of the other girls when I went there. I was there from 13 to 16, so the two girls that were stayed back with me were 17, 18, and um, he had the bigger one kind of hold me down, and I know she felt bad because I could see the tears in her eyes at the time, um, because it was cold, and I remember her her tearing up and trying to look away so pastor wouldn't see and the other girl had to go get fresh horse poop and pastor made her grab it with her hands even and it just came out of the horse so it was steaming it's January it's hot and he said you know why she's holding me down he's like I want you to make her eat it put it in her mouth and the other girl did and, and he, and I'm kind of tossing around going, no, 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 it's okay. I know what humility is. I I know, I know. I could tell you, I could quote it. I know I could tell you some Bible verses on it. I'm like trying to convince. And he's like, the more you talk, the more I'm going to fill it up. So, um, you know, I had to eat, eat the horse manure in order to be able to work with the horses and he said that God wanted me to learn that all in the name of God. God that was the things that he did really bad. The worst part about it was that it was all in the name of God. And that's just one of the stories that I have for you today. There's many more that are unfortunately sad like that.
1: I mean, are we able to talk if you're comfortable with a few a few more of the stories?
0: Uh yeah. Um
1: it's just a really yeah, yeah. If you're comfortable, I mean, this is no, a very it, tough subject. Uh, do you... well. I mean, are we able to talk gently about your first encounter of the sexual assault?
0: Yeah. Um, the has I was. Uh, it was when I first was there. There was a girl who was my big sister at the time who was watching over me because you can't be alone at all, at all. You can never be alone. Uh, And I saw her having a moment where she was weak. Something happened. She came in all upset and she was tearing up and she goes, she whispered, I want to go home. I want to go home. And I heard her and I said, I know I want to go home too. And I hugged her and she showed vulnerability. I didn't think anything of it. I thought we had a moment. We were going to bond and it was okay. Immediately afterwards when we fell asleep, she snuck out being scared that I would tell on her first. She ran out and told that I touched her. You know, anything was inappropriate. Any touch was inappropriate. But because Pastor had on the notes when I first got there that I was gay, um, it immediately got written up. So the next day in chapel, I go in and I find out I'm getting a write-up right before it starts for, uh, for touching someone, which is a big punishment. And he's calling me gay in front of the girls and the boys there. And he's like, what's wrong with you? You don't know how to not touch somebody. You like touching them girls, you know, Uh, what do you think? God thinks, you know, he's disgraced. He's disgusted with you. He's like, we're going to, we're going to, you know, teach you, you know, the right way, even if it, you know, takes all night, we're going to get this down to where this don't happen again. Well, I was on no level, but and I had to haul wood, start hauling wood that day. Um, Had to be isolated, not talk to, stricter rules, get up at four o'clock in the morning, haul wood, then haul wood in the afternoon, then haul wood up till late at night. Um, Not being able to talk to any of your peers, always be last in line, uh, just very shaming, shaming, shaming. And, um, well, that night, uh, an hour before uh, we were put to bed where the lights go off, uh, one of the staff members comes and gets me and says, Pastor wants to see you. And I was like, oh, oh okay. He's never wanted to see me before. You know, this is, I i, I don't know what's going on. I'm, I'm a little scared. You know, this is my first real encounter with him by myself too. Besides when I first got there and met him. And I know that I got in trouble that day, so I know it couldn't have been that it couldn't be that good, you know. And uh, I was like, "Where is he?" And they said, "He's in um, the cafeteria. We're gonna grab your coat. We're walking you over there." Well, uh, you know, you walk on this little path from the girls' dorm all the way to the church cafeteria part, the chapels it's in the same building as the chapel and right across the, from the chapel door is the cafeteria. And, uh, and as soon as I go in there, he's sitting on uh, a white fold out uh, bench table bench, you know, Um, and he tells the staff member, you can leave us. So, She's like, do you want me to come back for her? And he says, no, I'll send her back. And he starts yelling at me, hitting the table, screaming at me, calling me a dyke, a a lesbian. You know, do I like the way, uh, do I like the way the vagina smells? Do I like to be a dirty girl? You know, does that make me feel good to be dirty? that make me feel good to know that I'm shaming my family, that nobody wants me because I'm sick and that I choose to be sick. I choose this sickness and that I almost hurt someone with my sickness. And how dare I bring this into this beautiful, pure farm, a family of his, this is his family. And I'm bringing sickness in there. And I said, I just gave her a hug. I just gave her a hug. I didn't do anything. I wasn't even thinking anything bad. I really wasn't. I wasn't. I just am a naturally caretaking, comforting person by nature. And he's yelling at me and he's hitting and he comes up and he pulls me on the table and he's screaming at me. and he's, He even calls me by a different name and at, at this point i don't know the, who that person is i don't know if he just forgot my name and called me a different name you know or, or cuz he's so angry or what it was but um as he's yelling at me he um i i could see that he got aroused and that um and I was hoping that it was just in my head, you know? And then, uh, next thing you know, he, uh, he, I'm bent over the, um, the table and I, and he, hurt, sorry. And he takes advantage of me and I'm, um, uh, used right there and, um, And it's right there in the cafeteria that I have to go to for two years every day, a couple times a day, afterwards for the next two years. And the first couple months I'm used there, I can remember, uh, it it didn't last very long, but I can remember it um, feeling so long. And I remember looking out one of the windows and seeing the lake. And thinking, wouldn't it be nice if I was just on a boat and, like, just trying to go to a place in my head that wasn't this bad place where I was at, you know? Um, and I just wanted to go away. I just wanted to go somewhere in my mind that wasn't this scary, bad thing that was really happening to me in the moment. And I, after that, I was just, I had closed up. And I knew from that moment on, this place was going to be something that I was going to have to be on guard every moment I possibly could and watch everything from this point on. After that, he told me that I needed to go to uh, the the white room or it, the white room, no level room. It has lots of different names, white room, no, no level room, goodwill room. Uh, it's just the isolation room is what it is until, um, until, you know, I would not infect anybody else with my sickness and not talk about what happened. And uh, so I spent the night, in that room. And the next morning I just acted like nothing happened. I had to wake up and act like nothing happened. And, um, come to find out the, um, the name he called me, uh, was his ex wife's name. His ex wife had left him about a year or so prior for a woman. So he had a lot of anger towards women who liked other women. Um, So I guess when he was yelling at me and hurting me, for some reason, he slipped and called me his wife's name, but I didn't know that his ex-wife's name. I didn't know that at the time. I winded up asking one of the staff who this person's name was, and and they told me what happened. And they said, watch out, pastor is not going to like you. For the rest of the time you're here now, because you're one of the gays, and he really hates the gays and the the gays and the colors is what he said. He what Pastor hated. He was very racist too, very very racist. So he was big on the gays and the colors, and, and so anybody who was a minority or different in any sort of way uh, than what he liked, you know, was uh, your life there was even more miserable than just regular miserable mm.
1: and how frequent was the assaults Were they on a daily basis
0: uh, the uh,
1: Physic- physical sexual
0: the, the physical abuse was you know that happened the physical abuse would happen a lot more than the sexual abuse. The sexual abuse wasn't daily in it. And some more to other girls than not, you know, some girls may not have had the same exact experience as me and some had it worse. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: um,
0: but because I didn't have uh, that, the staff members felt the ones that were closest to pastor also felt that they had the right, the power and the right, like basically power to them was like crack cocaine for some people. You know, it was mm. a, it was such a drug. And here we are, these young girls in our prime with no parents around, nobody in the middle of nowhere with the cops are all on um, brother's side you know, and nobody messes with him and he don't involve them in anything. And it's kind of just like the bubble. So you get the people who are the closest to him and and they're able to take advantage of all of us girls too and do things to all of us girls too, that we were just like rewards for his other uh, minions, you know? So I want to talk about that a little bit.
1: Are you aware of how he was able to manipulate the cops?
0: Yeah, um, a little bit, yes. Money, um, He in the beginning, he um, really went around and promised, because it's Watkins Glen NASCAR's here, and he uh, used NASCAR to go in there and help fund them. So he partnered with the NASCAR people because there's a race here. NASCAR is a huge thing in America, yeah. huge thing races yeah, racers we've and everything. Mm. And it's right here, right basically across, right down the street, there's one of the biggest races um, that there is, is right next to the um, campus. So he partnered with them and some other local people to bring in revenue and money for the mm. town. So he, he and so that's how he was able to um, the town corruption started. And also um, he had really big lawyers that um, would sue anybody right off the bat. So he was just very intimidating. But the way he really worked it in was by money. He brought a lot of money in. He mm-hmm. bought up a lot mm-hmm. of the the town um, vineyards that were. He bought up some of the towns that areas, big areas that were properties in the area that were not selling. He bought it to um, bring life to it, really just to put his people in it and make the town happy. So it wasn't like these historical buildings were falling apart. So, you know, he looked like the good guy on the outside to the town people. Mm. And if that's what happened, they just stayed out of it. Any kind of issues, but there was also, um, you know, they hit a lot of things. Like when I was there, um, when I was when I was there, there was a boy who um, was a little feminine. I'll say he was younger, so you know, we all have different. And he was Southern, so sometimes that can look submissive and feminine at times, too. The Southern, um, and he was young. So a staff member took advantage of that. And eventually he had enough. It got really violent one time of his. And he had enough, and he ran and called the local police somewhere. And they came out and arrested that staff member. We all saw it. Okay. We all saw him get arrested. There's multiple accusations on that staff member. Um, But you, you go to look it up in the town, uh, you know, in public records, it's nowhere to be found. There's all these things in this town. There's nothing to be found. Um, Years. The only thing that you can find that ever happened in the village, in the town, um, in the county police records, is that there was a couple fire trucks that came by there for being on fire. The place was never on fire. It was I mean, we went back and talked to everybody that was ever there recently and asked, did you ever see a fire truck there? Did you ever hear of a fire or anything? And everybody's like, no. So, And they're like, there's a huge chunk missing where there was nothing even reported. There was kids running away. There was kids... Uh, There was even helicopters looking for kids at times, you know, and there was, um, you know, people being having to be in ambulance, having to take out the girl who uh, slid her wrist open and my roommate. And, you know, she um, after her abuse, one time she came back and I live with a lot of guilt from this. She came back one night really upset after being in trouble. And uh she was crying hysterically and really bad and I wanted to I wanted to comfort her, but I couldn't because of the rules. And I wasn't allowed to talk to her. I wasn't allowed to comfort her. I wasn't allowed to touch her. Couldn't say anything. And um we went to bed that night and I'm on the top bunk. She's on the bottom bunk. And uh she I jumped down the bell rings to wake up um, and I know she has to go haul wood cause she's in trouble. And I uh, wake her up a little bit before the bell rings and I'm yelling at her and she's not getting up. And then finally the bell rings and I jump down off the bed and go to wake her up. And I feel I touched the sleeping bag cause it was so cold. We all had to sleep with tons of sleeping bags or comforters around us always. Um, And then lots of clothes, even in hoodies and jackets on us. And I remember pushing on the sleeping bag and feeling liquid and looking at it. And it was, it was blood. She had cut her wrist open so much that, you know, there was just blood all over. And she had to be taken out in an ambulance. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, why didn't I... Why didn't I love on her? Why didn't I let her know? Why didn't I let her know that she wasn't alone? That I was suffering too. We couldn't, these were things we couldn't talk about. We couldn't share. Pain divided is pain shared. You don't have to carry it all on your own. And I just wish that I could have helped carry some of that pain for her that night. And maybe you know, maybe it wouldn't have been so traumatic uh you know to have been life or death like that um but it left that left a lot of guilt that I had to live with most of my life like for uh not and I have always been person that wants to save everybody because of that you know like this um, I better make sure I treat everybody good because you never know if someone's gonna hurt themselves, You never know if someone's gonna die. You never know if you can make a difference in somebody. Uh, that's a lot of shame I carried with me, and other people too. Like, um, they, like I said, there was that that boy who the guy got arrested, but and but there's no police records. He never got prosecuted for it. Um, the There was a NASCAR race. Uh, Somebody, I think it was this lady, Corinne. She was able to hook up some of the boys, the good, the boys that were on Pastor's good side, to go work, uh, volunteer their work for NASCAR. NASCAR wanted to help these teens. It looked like a good cause at the time, and he, we would. Host a banquet where we would cook a bunch of food for them. And they would come in and we would stand out in our uh like Amish looking kind of clothes. And they would walk around and kind of view us, and we would hold signs saying, Pastor saved us. Thank you, Lord <laughs> for Pastor. We're safe at the village. And they just thought we were these. Orphan kids that were so happy because that's what we sold them. We did sell them on it, but there was people that we told like, I, I told my family uh, one time they came up to visit me and we stayed on one of his bed and breakfasts off the camp main campus, but on one of his properties. And so they could watch us and uh, they let me stay with my family because it was Christmas night and I hadn't had anybody Visit me, so I and I was in a good place because I just brought in a lot of money for pastor, so he wanted to reward me. And um, <clears throat> so I kept trying to get the nerve to tell my family, like, look, we're being physically, sexually assaulted. We're being humiliated. We're being abused. We're have we're used as. They're using us for work, labor, uh, to make money off of. I mean, this is not what it looks like. It's not some fun horse farm where we're able to ride horses and sing all in this beautiful lake in God's country. Um, it's just not like that. And so I got some duct tape and I taped myself to the, you know, to uh some stairs and told my parents about the truth and said, I refuse to leave until you take me somewhere else, until you hear me out, hear what I'm saying. I need to tell you the stories. And, uh, and I said, and if you take me back there, you're only going to cause me to get hurt more and you'll have to live with that. Please don't do that to me. At least if you're going to take me back, don't say I said anything. And of course, they took me back and they told my parents I was manipulating, trying that I was, um, if they would take me home, that I would hurt myself and become run off with the woman and and live a terrible life. And then they told me my parents didn't want me, that they were sinners and that, that I would die out there, that God told them that I would get AIDS and die and that nobody would ever love me that I would live a life constantly in turmoil and hardship. That's what he told all of us kids. And we all believed that we would have a terrible life and be nobody if we left um, the village. We believed that. We all believed we had to stay under pastor's wing for safety. Um, And... That's why a lot of people don't speak out because of the fact, the guilt, the shame, the fear, the fact that he, he had it in with so many different people. He looked so powerful to us children. He, he also not only was powerful to us children, but he even put all the staff members on no level. He was powerful enough to where he yelled at all the staff members who were in their 40s, 50s, 60s, got them out there hauling wood get out there and haul some wood because I tell you too, Jesus is coming back and you better be right with me and listening to me or else you're going to hell. So everybody gets out there and the husband and wife and their family and they're all out there hauling wood. And when you have somebody larger than life like that, you know, you're it, it seems impossible to take something like that down. And that's and just ego runs Everyone's run by.
1: on. Mm, everyone's hanging on to his every word. Yeah, taking it gospel. Yeah, it
0: is. It's like gospel. Every and uh, you know, it's it's his ego run wild. It is literally uh, power, and not just him, but for his minions who are under him. And that's why it was so attractive to the the kids in the program to get to move up and to become staff because once you became staff. You also got that ego boost in that uh, larger than life.
2: Hope you're enjoying the podcast. This is a word from our sponsor, Beer Fifty Two. Do you fancy a free case of beer? My co-host Jen may have quit alcohol, but you don't have to keep going with dry January. You can get a case of exceptional beer from my good friends at Beer 52. Simply go to wwwbeer 52com forward slash S-H-A-U-N, Sean. And all you got to pay is a pittance, the postage, $5.95, to claim a free case now. I've been a member of Beer 52 for a while, and I absolutely love it. Each month they send their members a case of unique and varied beers from a different part of the world. They've also got the Ferment Magazine. If you want to study up on breweries, regions, the wonderful world of beer, while enjoying a phenomenal selection of fresh and tasty craft ales. Thank you for supporting our sponsor. Link is in the description box below this video on YouTube.
0: A high that they would get. I mean, uh, having that that sense of power over these kids and in this area where you weren't responsible for your actions to the outside world, only to pastor. Um, you know, you felt. They felt like that was like crack cocaine to them. It was powerful. And here we are, young girls in our prime. Uh, You know, our bodies are looking perfect. You know, teenage bodies are new. We are thirsty for attention, love. We don't have a mom's love. We don't have hugs. We don't have friendships. We don't have that uh, feeling. So, you know, we're in survival mode you know, there's girls throwing themselves at pastor, you know, Sunday after church, I'll just go there and give him me and then he'll like me and then he won't, you know, I can move up in the world and I can become close to God and he can make anything happen for me, you know, because he's always promising these fake promises that nothing would ever come true with, you know, and, uh, you know, um, those are those are really sad things that he feels that he could do. When I was, because I had my learning problems and because I was so young, I went in at 13 and left at 16. I couldn't become staff, really. And because I didn't do the schooling during the school time, I was left unattended a lot. Underneath the boys' dorm, there was, I was, going to where the staff kids got taught their schooling and was told to wait for one of the um, women who worked there to teach me something or to show me a chore to do. And her husband was there. It was a very excluded area to where people couldn't hear me. It's kind of like a basement room. And I go down there to meet with her and she's not there, but her husband is. And he's like, well, come sit down next to me and talk with me. And, um, you know, we'll wait for her together. And during this time, I don't know. You know, I'm just doing whatever I'm told. And um, and he's like, you know, you're a sweet girl. You always don't talk much. You know, I know that, you know, your family doesn't come and see you or send letters very often. And, uh, you know... And he's just trying to be real nice to me and he just starts touching me more and saying like, well, you know, a lot of the older girls, what they do to not get in trouble is, you know, get close to me and get close to somebody and love on them in a certain type of way that maybe you're not going to understand is a good way. But it's like a secret good way to love on us and get us to protect you where you don't get hurt and you know he winded up um, the staff member winded up taking advantage of me and sexually assaulting me right there Got, went from being so sweet and in in, in being real gentle to getting really angry and mad at me because he couldn't keep his arousal and you know, and he blamed it on me being too young and not experienced enough. And I, if I had more experience and was more slutty like the other girls, I could do it. But some young girl like me couldn't make him come. And and then he just, he, he winded up uh, degrading me, just completely degrading me until he ended up getting so angry that he, couldn't and uh that he left me like that and he the last thing he said was cover up yourself before you know i blame this all on you and you know that they'll think it's your fault they know that you'll think it's your fault and i did i knew that if they found me like that and i told anybody that i knew that everybody would just blame me somehow and you know they had they had a person there that would cut your hair so you didn't have to go off the campus to get a haircut they had a nurse i don't know if she was licensed or not to be honest with you she may have just had you know some classes but she was an older lady that never had been married and was very alone and looking for purpose and she lived on the campus and uh she would hand out vitamins a lot. There was no medicine. Medicine was uh, a tool of Satan. Any kind of the whole, that whole world was a tool from Satan. Um, so, you know, I saw a, a girl that I knew that I had to uh, be, I was the big sister at this point, um, she was younger. I mean, she was older than me, but I had been there longer and they let me be her big sister. She, her parents said that she had been with a lot of, uh, a lot of, she was promiscuous and that she was, had a couple boyfriends and that she was promiscuous. That was one of the things they put down on her list. So, you know, I saw them when we went to the doctors and I had to stay there with her on the table. And it was like, right after normal it's like it was so normal it was was the weirdest thing ever they're doing the blood pressure oh bend over let me check for scoliosis oh get up there let me check and make sure and see how much of a whore you are and let me check your vagina for how much of a whore you're oh we gotta fix this down here you're a mess It, it just was like the next step you know like oh like when you go to a doctor oh let's check your blood pressure let's uh Put you on the scale. Let's check to see what a big whore you are and see what we can do down there to make sure you're not, you know, going to be a whore again. You know, the things that they would do to you there, they're things that you wouldn't want to tell people this stuff. People aren't going to look at you right afterwards. There's not something that you're going to want to come out and tell everybody, hey, listen to what happened to me. It's, and, he tells you nobody's going to believe you anyways. You're you're here because your family don't want you. You're. Well, I'll make you look crazy. I'll make you look like a troubled teen. I'll make you look like, uh, you know that you aren't right with God. That you just hate on God. And I'm telling you what I read the Bible when I was there. God is not. I mean, Jesus seemed like the most peacefulest man in the world. Like, you know, he wasn't somebody that wanted somebody to like like that, nothing matched up. It didn't make sense even to somebody as young as me. That wasn't the God that I would see, the God that I would want. And that's when I knew I had to find a way out of there. If I was going to save myself, I had to find a way out of there because people were just not going to, they were there for so long. I could see people in their 30s that that were there in the early 80s and you know here we are get ready to go into the 2000s i didn't want to be one of those people i i was scared not to be in a certain way but i knew i had to find a way out of this place
1: yeah
0: and um one of the things that helped me was there was this girl there that um she would she was the only Kind of, she was one of the only allies. She played the piano real well. She loved Tori Amos. Do you know who Tori Amos is?
1: No, I don't. Who uh, she's that? a
0: great piano singer. And she actually stands for a lot of rape victims, too, um, come to find out. And she would sit there, and at night, we were able to um, sneak in to the auditorium so she could practice some. Um, songs that pastor would want her to sing in church play the piano for church. Well, when nobody was looking, she would play me a, a real song, you know, from, that was on the radio or a song from, and uh, from Tori Amos that would sing a song about being hurt from religious people. And I would lay on the floor as a kid And she would play this piano so hard and so powerful and scream out these songs from pain, from deep pain that I could feel because I knew the pain she was feeling too. And I would lay on the floor and let the vibrations of the piano just come over me and say, I got to find the strength to get out. One day I'm going to tell people my story. One day I'm going to come back for these girls, but I got to get out first so I can get better so I can come back for them. And I would lay there and I would think of ways how I'm going to get out and I'm going to make this better. I'm not going to rot here and die. I'm not going to be a victim just to be a victim because I got shoved here. I can persevere. I can do something. And, uh, you know, that was the start of a lot of hope for me is just having those moments of being able to uh, get away and lay there and imagine a better life for myself and for those that I cared about. Yeah. Um,
1: And so, yeah, let's talk about the day you decided you were going to leave camp.
0: Well, um, when, uh, after I stole girls hurting themselves. There was a girl there who got pregnant by a staff member and disappeared. They ran off together. He was married with another woman. And she was um, having, you know, uh, she was having pregnancy symptoms and hiding it. And, uh, you know, because we didn't want people to know. And But we all knew we were getting hurt like that. We all knew it. And next thing you know, her and a staff member, gentleman, older gentleman, uh, snuck away and ran away together. A young girl that was in the program, an older gentleman who had a wife and a child in the program. He, like, a certain type of girl, and she was very much his favorite type. And um, she was pregnant ran off. And after seeing, um, you know, my one, the one friend um, get hurt by the doctor and her uh, private parts, and in and, um, and another, a lot of being isolated and kept in a room for days where I wasn't able to eat and I had a kidney infection. My, I have a bad kidney, my left kidney's messed up because of it, still to this day. Because I got a bad kidney infection and didn't get to eat or drink, and my kidney just got so bad, and I suffer from uh, kidney issues from it. I knew that I was starting to plan to get out. And I was trying to save whatever information I could on the place. So when I got out, but they did room searches where they would throw away anything, contraband. Contraband could be just writing down any information from the place at all, because they don't want you to have any little letters about the place that you could accidentally leave with. So but because of my dyslexia, they knew that I didn't have good handwriting. So they didn't bother to read my stuff very much. Um, in my room, so I was able to hide a little bit more and save as much as I could. Uh, my aunt came in to she thought I was just at some camp, you know, and she's like, "Why is this going on so long? Why has she been here for two years? This is weird And she just pops up and she walks in and she sees a a she sneaks in she's younger, so they didn't notice that when she snuck in that she, they thought she was just one of the girls and they were kind of yelling at her, saying, get back to the dorm, get back to the dorm. And she ran into the wrong building. She ran into the boys' building, actually. And um, when she ran into the boys' building, she saw them holding a boy, a young boy. She, She said he looked like he was 10, but he was 13, in his underwear and he was tied up and they were spraying... Uh, pine salt and uh, Windex on his face. And they were saying, You want to go home now? You want to go home now? And um, which was regular things that they would do, you know, to teach you to be scared to not want to leave. You know, it's going to be even worse out there. You're going to get it even worse. We can stop it here. But once you leave there, you're going to get it worse out there. Well, then they took her to the administration building and she said, I want to see my niece. Um, And she was shaken up and they said, your niece is in trouble. You're not allowed to see her. And she said, I, I demand to see my niece. I want to see my niece. And they said, she's in trouble. She has to um, haul wood and do punishment. And my aunt said, I'll haul wood with her. I'll do it with her. I want to see her. And they said, fine, you can leave the campus for a couple hours a day. We need to know exactly where you're at at all times. And uh, so they brought me into a room and threatened me real bad so that they would go back and get my sister and bring her there because I had a younger sister bring her in there if I didn't if I didn't come back or if I told her anything. Or if I didn't make what, she, if when my aunt, aunt asked me what happened with that boy, if I didn't make it out to be a joke, that um, you know that they would go back and get my sister and bring my sister there. Would I really want my little sister there because she was coming of age where she could be there? And there was other um, you know stories like that that you'd hear. So I was scared. So I didn't say much and. My aunt, but what she saw, she started advocating for me. And eventually my mom, my dad, I don't think ever wanted me to come back. But I think my, my mom, deep down inside, I think she wanted me to come back and be fixed. She just wanted me to be magically fixed and it'll all be okay. But the problem was, is that when I was in New York, they got separated and divorced. So when I, and ne- they never told me. Because I didn't have much contact with them. And so my mother winded up. I found out that Pastor was going to New York. He had a lot of things going on with a lot of um, business transactions going on. He had a new sc- um, scam coming. Anytime he had new people that he could sell something to or spin something to, he would get a little busy. So I started paying attention to that and he was flying out to Canada. So I knew he wasn't gonna be there and I knew he wanted some extra protection. So I knew that there wasn't gonna be as many guards. I told my family for my 16th birthday, I think it was, um, that God told pastor that I was allowed to be free and go tell the world about how great this place is and that kids should go there to find Jesus. And my, my mom showed up and, and no, he wasn't there at the time. And I knew staff was very low. I took all that I could carry and just ran and told my mom to go, 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 go. It's okay. I can't stand to say goodbye. It's too hard. It's too hard. I love them too much. But really, I was just scared <laughs> that they would tell my mom, no, 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 bring her back, she's not supposed to leave, because nobody leaves on good terms. You either leave and he tries to call the cops on you, tries to institutionalize you, tries to uh, tries to discredit you in any way possible, because he wants you to feel fearful of him still, even when you're out of there. Um, and I left, and luckily my mom just kept going and I was so, I was just so thankful that she didn't turn around because she didn't believe me any of the other times, but because I spinned it to her in a way that I was healed and I was great. And I was going to go do some great stuff instead of telling the truth that I was abused and hurt. Uh, And I gave it a nice spin to it. She accepted it. But when I got home, and I saw that my parents were um, divorced. I remember a pastor telling me that my parents were evil and that they were devil worshipers. And I started getting scared of them, but you know, I, I was so grateful to be out of there, but I had so much guilt that I would never live a good life unless I would go back there and bad things would happen. And he told me that nobody would ever love me and that, bad things would happen to me throughout my whole life, and I would have to know that it was because I'm going against him. Well, come to find out, um, you know, my, my parents, when I told them and kept telling them and crying, and um, I was in therapy, my mother felt real bad but just didn't want me to talk about it. Don't shame me. Don't live in it. Get over it. He'll get over it. I don't want to talk about it. My dad was like, what? You're only there for a little bit. Come on now. You know, he's like, uh, you know, suck it up, suck it up. You know, Kind of thing just where he just didn't want to take responsibility for the shame that this is what he did with this kid. Um, and, uh, you know, you're, daughter was raped in the name of Jesus you know who that's a very powerful thing and here they are these Christians and they sent me to a place to get raped in the name of Jesus that's a, so they didn't want me to talk about it so they as much as they could they would just shame me and I was the kid that went away so you got to think I'm coming back into the world I didn't know anything that was going on I didn't know anything in the news that was going on. I didn't know who, what president. I didn't know, uh, you know, things normal things that everybody knew. Songs, TV shows, pop culture, uh, what it was like to be a kid. All those things got stolen from me. You know, your first date, homecoming, um, just all those things—they were stolen from me. I was, I was hurt, and I was angry, and I was. And I turned to anything. I I couldn't be alone. I found a couple close friends that I could trust and begged them to stay with me and didn't want anybody else to care about me and just wanted to be with me. I suffered a lot of nightmares, severe panic attacks, really bad flashbacks, uh, a lot of guilt and shame, crying. I should have saved one of the girls, I should have, I should go back. I left them there. Uh, So I would try to save, I would go find the one that was hurt, the kid in the school that was hurting the most and try to go up and befriend that girl or that kid that was uh, sad and lonely and try to save them. I had a couple friends with me that I tried to convince to move in with me. Uh, I'll try to help you and save you and make you better. Like I had this complex that I, felt so bad that I left those girls behind. I suffered from addiction, um, you know, trying to numb the pain and the sadness that was there. Um, You know, anything to, especially, like, when I, you know, it would help me process some of the things that help me process or not feel as awful about the situation. Here I am, I went through something that I see that I don't know anybody who went through, and here I am carrying it all by myself. And then I have these flashbacks. I'd watch movies like *Handmaid's Tale* or uh, a show about something, and I'd have immediate,
1: almost uh, PTSD.
0: PT, yeah. And well, I was diagnosed with CPTSD, Complex Post Traumatic Stress Disorder,
1: mm.
0: and. Um, you know, literally it was, I would understand exactly what it was like for them. I knew exactly what it was like. It was like I was zoned in and I'm telling everybody, look, 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 this is what it was like. And I, I could relate or people who were kidnapped and held against their will and what it was like. That's exactly the same feelings I had. The Stockholm syndrome where we protected, you know, our abusers at any cost. This is exactly all the same things that I dealt with. And, Mm. um, and at some point I had children. um, I had twins at 21 and they came out with some health issues and they didn't even know I was having twins until I was like six months pregnant, which was so weird. Mm. But then when they did, when one of them was born, he was born with a rare, deformity that nobody's had in over a hundred years it was like a very rare deformity and uh, they didn't recognize that he was going to have it until he was born and then they didn't know what it was they had to have all these doctors fly in from different hospitals to look at him and I remember the first thing I thought this is because I'm going against pastor this is pastor's curse on me I mean and that's how even sick that these seeds, these imprints that he left in us, you know, in my mind, that even though it's years later, something severely goes wrong in my life, and I'm still in my mind, blaming myself for going against pastor, that that's why my son is born with an issue. And of course, I know that that's not real. But I'm struggling with it. You know, it's still like a, well, maybe it is, maybe it's not. It's an inner battle struggle to where I can't function well because it it's whole, it's over my head. And, um, my son had to have five brain surgeries at John Hopkins and reconstructive skull surgeries. He was the first one to do anything this big and it was a really hard to get through something like that. So here I am again in a rare situation that nobody else has been in. And uh, I'm having to handle it and step up and be strong. And um, But the one thing that I, I'm part of the thing that I took from it is that I said, my son, he looks at his twin and he says, oh, he's what I'm supposed to look like. Um, because he was born with the uh, instead of a cleft lip or a cleft palate, uh, he was born with the cleft from the bottom of his nose up into his skull. So it left um, the brain kind of sinking down, hypertelorism where the eyes are further apart, and basically where they had to reconstruct him a whole nose and and close, close up his skull. But his identical twin doesn't have that problem. He just has a problem in his lungs and in his heart. So more inside. And I had to explain to um, my boys that we all have to, we all have to go through something. We all have something we have to carry. We all have a story. Each one of us has a story, whether it's small, big, little, or something, but we all have a story And we all have something. Some of us carry it on the outside. Some of us carry it on the inside. And, you know, but we all have something. And our job is not to judge people, but to love people where they're at and help them grow and accept them. Um, You know, I wanted them to know that, that there is still hope and there's still love and that you can go through something terrible and still come out, not being inked ang- to letting the anger consume you, letting the sickness and darkness consume you, but still um, finding some hope in that, which is, you know, what I'm doing now, which is what I'm really, I mean, I've been in therapy for years. I worked really hard in, in, therapy for years to the fact that I even married my therapist <laughs> years later and uh, we are very close and we worked really hard with these things and I spent a lot of time working on it and I want to take this time now that I'm able to speak about it and let others know that it's okay to talk about it that yeah the fear is lifted that I can be a voice and if I have to start away and then so other people can do it, I can, I'll do that. I'll take the first steps, but I know there'll be many after me that will speak up too. I know there's going to be many more that will come after me there that will speak up for the things that have happened to them too. And if I have to set an example for it, I want to be the one to do that and I'm documenting my recovery process on that on YouTube and, um, and um, acceptance for you. And I'm going to do it in a way that shows how I'm going to take legal action too to recover, because I don't want this. The main purpose of this is to make sure that the other kids are not getting hurt. There's no more kids going to get hurt because these things are generational. Like we learned from our parents. We learn from the people who are in charge of us who we learn from the people that we watch. We watch somebody, you know, just kind of like an apprentice situation. You watch somebody enough in your job, you're going to learn how to do that job. Right. You know, you yeah. learn how to do things wrong too, though. and, there's a lot of things that people learn that were a lot of bad things. And I want to make sure that those things are stopped and that there is some good things set in place. And even children know you don't do the things that were done to us. So I want to make sure that there's awareness out there for places like this. I want to make sure that, uh, that things are put into action, that you know, the states and can check in on places like this. The things like this cannot hide in the corners where nobody's at anymore, that we we want to come in and see. You cannot hide from us anymore, your dark secrets, that we want it in the light. We want truth. You know, everybody deserves safety. Everybody deserves a chance to feel safe and loved. And that if everybody's doing their job right, that shouldn't be a problem. So I want to make it clear. And if telling my story and sharing my experience and setting the way helps for that, then I don't mind being the one to do it first. It may be difficult, but nobody wants to be the first one to do really anything. But I don't mind. And... I know that there's some others out there who have stepped up too, but I'm willing to step up and tell the truth. And I know that I'm telling the truth and that's what's the most important thing. And I know that I believe enough in us humans and love that people will come together to support the right thing to make sure these things don't happen to other kids.
1: Exactly. And you're so brave. I'd love to say, and because I came about uh, hearing your story on Unfiltered Stories on Facebook, she obviously passed me your details. I watched your interview on there and thought, what a powerful woman. Has many other victims of Freedom Village come forward that you're aware of?
0: Yes, and that is the... Is it because
1: of your interview? <laughs> I'm, um, I'm yeah. just
0: going to be completely honest, show my vulnerability. That is something that helps me so much. It yeah. helps me so much. I have people writing me and in the comments going, Thank you for finding the words to say what I could never say. I still have nightmares. I can't drive anywhere without uh, me driving because I'm scared I'm going to get stuck there. Yeah. It's this day, and it's been, you know, 45 years later, and I'm still scared for anybody to drive me anywhere because I'm scared I'm going to get stuck there for years. And our, I have nightmares still till I shake to this day. My, my husband has to hold me every night. I scream out my kids, my, my six beautiful, wonderful children that I love so much. I mean, they know this story and they're so used to me crying out in my sleep and shaking in my sleep and my husband has to hold me tight. This doesn't have to be anybody else's story. This can end if we support people and believe them. And the most beautiful thing was, is that when I shared my story, other people stepped out and said, she's telling the truth. I was I wouldn't I was too scared to say it because I thought nobody would believe me. Please believe her. I was there. She's telling the truth. And that is what it's about. We need to support each other in our pain pain shared is pain divided. And not just that, how we heal is finding purpose to the pain. You don't just let that pain consume you or sit in it and get over it. You find purpose to make sure it doesn't happen again, to to, make sure that That is not the God that everybody thinks or else nobody would want religion ever or spiritual relationship or a higher power, good vibes. Nobody would want anything like that. If it was so dark and sick like that, there is a, there is goodness out there. There is healing. There is hope. And the God I know wants me to be happy, wants me to love and wants me to make sure other people are safe. And I'm, I'm just real grateful for that. And I'm going to continue to share the story more in detail, different things that went on there. um, As I get more comfortable talking about things, Uh, some real unfortunate things I'm going to share more, but you know, it's a process. It's not something I'm going to get there overnight. And, but I'm going to continue to, keep working towards healing and helping others to heal too
1: no thank you for today honestly you're an absolute inspiration um where can the followers find you if they want to contact you we'll put all your links in the description box below this video obviously um where can they head to to get in contact for support yes i'll send you all my charities.
0: information it's going to be um had acceptance for you on youtube And, um, there's going to be a Facebook and Instagram and link and, um, hopefully a TikTok one too, but we're, we're working on all those too. And also the other survivors as well. I encourage all of them to come out, speak, it'll help heal you. It'll help, uh, bring justice and purpose to your pains. so it's not just something you have to forget about a lot of people are like i just want to forget about it. i just want to forget about it but it's so good to hear someone being strong about it we don't it doesn't have to be something we completely forget about because it's a part of us it will always be a part of us but it doesn't have to control us anymore it doesn't have to control our thoughts and what we do and uh I hope we can all come together and get justice for our pain and also grow. And Mm. I'm so grateful for people like you that give us a chance to tell our truth and speak our story out there. And it is a crime that these things happen and I hope we get justice for it.
1: And I aim to expose every sort like that in the world. I find it, it's, it's heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. But you're such again a powerful, wonderful woman. So before we head over to to the campus, is there anything you want to add before we sign off on here?
0: No, I think I'm just so grateful for this opportunity, and I look forward to showing you um, some things that I where I lived and this cult that I lived in that was and you know, some people wonder if they really were in a cult. Like, I don't even wonder, we know for sure that we were, that we were in a, in a cult and that he was this leader. He was as, he was as close to God as you possibly can get. And, um, and I'm so glad that I'm free from it and there is hope and, um, thank you for letting me share my story and my experience mm-hmm. with everybody. And I'm just so grateful. And I look forward to sharing some of the uh, things that I lived through. And I'm glad I can finally speak about it because in my family, I wasn't allowed to speak about it. It was mm-hmm. for years. I had to hide it away because it it would upset my my family so this is a great opportunity to just be able to tell the truth and be honest and i'm definitely
1: and hopefully all the lovely viewers please leave comments uh, below in support for danielle Uh, like and subscribe no always. um so yeah we're gonna head over to campus now i'll pause the video this was this was the boys
0: door i mean this is the boys um horse barn where um, Budweiser, Budweiser Beer, um, they, they donated their Clydesdales to us here. He somehow got them to donate some of their old Clydesdales to us here. And only the boys that were closest to pastor that would do um, pastor's you know, uh, sketchy, more bad things. We get to work with the horses because that was a privilege thing. Mm. Uh, but the girls' horse barns more down here. And I'll show you. Uh, we're coming up on. This is just a big open field. Never got really used for anything. It looks like maybe to play some sports with, but. We never played sports there, ever. Not, I was going to ask, I see
1: the see the American football goal, but that mm-hmm. never got used?
0: Yeah, there's, like, gold there. Now, there's that building over here. If you look right over here, this white building, or you can walk over there, that's the administration building. That's one of the newer buildings. That's where um, the people when he wanted to sell this place to somebody, sell it real good. It was very modern, very clean. Um, His office was there. Uh, It was a very good place to entertain guests, to make it look like a good place to drop money off. A lot of pamphlets, a lot of fake recovery stories and stuff like that there. And also there was a, Room there that he'd have us work at to answer phones 1 800 Victory Today to answer phone calls about uh, to try to somehow bring in other kids so he can get more funding. The more kids he had, the more funding it was. He always acted like there was no empty rooms and no beds, like he was always full of kids. But the truth was is that there wasn't that many kids. It was like 40 girls and 60 boys at the most. Sometimes even way less than that. Not tons of people were dropping off their kids, but there was still some that were constantly from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Enough to where nothing like that should ever happen.
1: Mm.
0: Now we're going to come up here and um, I'll show you a little more.
1: Does it feel quite eerie being there now?
0: Yeah, I feel... Um, I. It's the weirdest thing to me because I felt very... I was, it was my most isolated time to where I was the most saddest, but I also, I also had, I was alone and I knew I had to get out. It was like the, it was like something you would see like your most primal moments of like. What are you going to do to get out of this? What are you going to do? How are you going to be the one out of these 40 that make it out of here? That doesn't get wrapped up in this. So it was very primal. It was very instinctual. It was very intuitive. I had to rely on everything instinctual inside me to make it through. So... But at the same sense, there's a lot of sickness and darkness here. A lot of sadness. A lot of things that went on here. I mean, this was a home right here that they used for... um, This was a home that they used right here for women who had teen pregnancies that when you didn't have anywhere to go and your mother didn't want you to be pregnant and she would send you here with a pregnancy and he would adopt the children out to weird places like Mexico, all sorts of weird places. Like they found some stories of a Irish kid that was found in Mexico from a, uh, there was a child, there was a woman who didn't get enough care here, lost her baby in the shower in this place. (sighs) Um, when she was so far along just because she wasn't getting the right nutrients and the right care. And mistreated physically and she had to carry wood. And she was so scared. So he'd have teenagers that got pregnant in here. In this in this um, house. They were separated from the other ones. Mm. Uh, this place over here. This house was given to the the older couple that uh, gave their social security checks to pastor brothers and they were the cook and in charge of cooking the woman was in charge of cooking all our food and the man was in charge of um, the animals on on the property so they lived in this house and even though it's a little more run down now than it was back then it was still even run down then but they lived there now this red house over here this red house was pastor's house for a while until he got a whole bunch of property and moved off property When his son took over more. But this. This is the road that I told you. We had to walk up and down. With the wood. I'll go to it. But. This is the woodpile road. Yeah. This is definitely weird. I can feel my. I can feel myself. uh, Feeling scared again. And my kidney hurting. and Like a Weird fight-or-flight, adrenaline feeling. Oh, God. Um, But this is the road that... Um, I don't know if you can see. This is the road right here. We'd walk up and down this road. So, I can hear you good. This is the road where we... All the girls would do their punishment. Right on this road. Up and down here. And then... Um, The red house over here is pastor's house. And then do you see all the way back here, this white, this white building right back there? Yeah. See that? Yeah. I can walk up to it more. It's a white barn building with a gray roof. That is, that is his radio, uh, no, that's his TV station. So that's where he would have, um, he would pick every week on Friday, he would pick a couple of us kids to go on to film his, um, let's walk down there, to film his uh, television shows where he would have us walk. And tell us lies, like he would tell us to say extreme things, like we would be devil worshipers or Wiccans, or um, you know, we would be. Uh, we were good. At, we would be stuck on heroin and drugs if it wasn't for him. Here's the horse. One of the horse barn uh, places where he had a lot of his horses he was really into riding horses it was a hobby of his that he really enjoyed did you find so that was a horse bar
1: he... sorry there's a bit of a Go delay ahead, uh, did did you find when he um vacated the property that the punishments were, were obviously lighter when he moved off the property?
0: No. Or did his son take over? No, because he would constantly come back on, even if he went to leave to go to the Bahamas. I mean, there's even some theories about him. Some people who've worked with him said he's worked with Epstein and he, um, you know, go and to the Bahamas and to the islands with Epstein and stuff. There's some theories about that. But this was Pastor's house no. when I lived here. Um, that he would have us come and massage him in. And, you know, of course, the massaging went to other areas mm. and did other sexual favors and things that he had us do. Um, and I would... Even when he moved off property, Jen, he did not... It did not lighten up here. It, no. it was a culture of everybody still wanted to please pastor. So he had it ingrained in all of us it, that we would all tell him. Nobody was safe to go to anybody to say, hey, something happened. We went to everybody. It was, if that happened to you, then pastor must believe you deserve it or if that happens to you, God must believe that you deserve that. And, um, you know, so those things, those things that happened to us, we believe that it was all ordained by God or a pastor in some sort of way. So even when he was gone, everything was still the same. Everything ran the same it would only lighten up a tiny, tiny bit. Maybe security would lighten up a little bit. But he had it such brainwashed that even when we would leave the property, we would be so scared that we would be like, get us back, get us back on time. Mm. Now I'm coming up to the girls' dorm, which is, this is a very, um, this is, very hard for me. So, just to let you know, this and another yeah, building will be hard for me. But this is where I lived for a couple years. And we walked up. Uh, there's a couple apartment buildings in here. Yeah, I'm back. Okay, even to go to the bathroom, we were monitored 24 7. So, if you wanted to become staff, you wanted to become part of the abuse. You wanted to become part of it because it's what made Pastor happy. And in turn, you also got your freedom a little bit. You got—you weren't as discriminated and hated and, and able to be picked on. So there's a couple apartments in here. This is an old dormitory from a long time ago. And this is where I lived. And what they did is You weren't even allowed to be around the same girl for very long. If they caught you sitting next to a girl too long, you'd switch up the rooms every couple weeks just so you wouldn't get close to anybody too close because then they were scared if you got too close to anybody, you would start sharing secrets and working together against each other. They wanted everybody to constantly feel alone, like they didn't have anybody to trust. So, it was always a real hard thing that you never could get close to anybody. You couldn't touch anybody. You couldn't talk to anybody. You couldn't tell secrets. Because they just didn't want you to get any ideas that you could be safe outside here. Um, Now, this is the boys' dorm over here. Even though it was so close, it was worlds apart. We never got to talk to the boys unless Pastor wanted us to marry and he would put us in one of these houses. Like when the the cook, Mama New and Papa New left, he he had another couple that he put together here move in there and start over being the cook and being somebody else, maybe the groundskeeper or something. And they all worked for free just to be on the property just to live yeah. in this world this cult world that feeds on each other that constantly um, you know one thing after another uh, you you just it's a power play constantly now this is this is the trail I walked so many times a day in line with girls with the skirt to make ankle and a turtleneck. And a couple times a day to church, I'd walk this um, beaten path right here. You could barely see it now. Mm. And you could see the lake behind here. And I just would pray that I, one day I could get out on a boat and have fun and be a normal person, be a normal kid that could go run and play. Um, This Playground is new. This wasn't here when I was here, but they put this up after I left for the children, for the um, for the mothers that had kids that were trying to be adopted out. Because they would adopt kids out to other places Uh, that was very that was not it was under the table. It was not a very uh, normal adoption. Let's Let's go this way
1: yeah
0: this is the so this is still the boy's dorm, and this is where i talked about getting her down here if i went in this door uh where i went where the staff kids were and i had to wait with that gentleman to wait for his wife that never came it was down underneath here in this room right here where one of the places that i got ass- assaulted
1: Can you see seeing clearly? Yeah, you can
0: see. Yeah, I don't think you can see clearly, but it's basically just a very room that you could see. They left very quickly, and it's all pulled down and paper on the floor and bookshelves on the floor where. This was a, a room where they kept books and stuff where they allowed the staff to learn, the staff kids to learn. They got better education. Our education wasn't even real. This is the church and the cafeteria building right here. Now, mm. this is where I first got raped in my first encounter. My first rape and my first sexual encounter with pastor brothers was in this room. And I was looking out the window, looking at that lake right there, wishing that it wasn't happening to me in the story I told you earlier. Yeah. And if you come here, you can see there's some, well, you can tell they left in a hurry when you look up here. But us on the other side, it might be on the side, too, but this was the church side, this was the food side. The food we got at Freedom Village here, it was either grown on the property or it was uh, spoiled food from a nearby grocery store that donated all their spoiled food to us. and we would cut off the mold, cut off uh, the old expiration dates and use it. We had to work with what we could. We didn't get very much food. We got cold oatmeal. We had it uh, chickens on the property that we got to eat eggs of it. Uh, very watered down tuna. A lot of a lot of bread uh, with mold. This was this was an area down here. This was the rec room area down here. You can see there's I mean, not much of it way. left, but there was a rec room area that when you, got told somebody um, was thinking about running away. I was thinking about um, uh, going home, or or was thinking about um, talk uh, doing something that pastor said you shouldn't really do. Uh, you and you told on somebody once a month. You would get to go down to that rec room, and you would get to get a sprite. Now you couldn't have anything with caffeine in it. But you were lucky because you got a Sprite and you got um, some graham crackers. I mean, we were lucky if we ever got hamburgers or any good food like that. It was just something unheard of. Now, this is where they let a lot of homeless men stay if they were to take care of the property good. But they had access to us girls in a way that they should never have access to young children. Mm. And, and this is back where the the boys held their wood. And unfortunately, a lot of girls got hurt back here. There's a lot of bad stories about a lot, a lot of... A lot of bad things happening to girls back here near the dumpsters and calling them bad names that they were just trash given up from their family and nobody wants them and nobody would believe them. And, uh, you know, there were just a lot of bad things that happened back here. This is where the truck would come in for the food that would donate the spoiled food from that grocery store, and we would load it into the kitchen. This goes right into the kitchen right here. And we'll try to make the best of the spoiled food as best as we could. But we'd get sick a lot. It would be a lot of... We would, get, we would all get sick food poisoning a lot. And there wasn't the right sort of staff here to take care of us. Now, this is um, following me up here, but where we'd have church, a couple every day, sometimes a couple times a day. Even in the real snow, snow would be up to our knees. We'd have to haul wood and go to church no matter what. Um, you can see a lot of a lot of things. See how there's like a little. i nice I'm sure if you could tell but there's like a little tiny uh dialogue of uh, little tiny houses and stuff that he, yeah, he wanted like that. a christian disney world that he dreamed up of to where he could tell other people if you were to get to this place give to freedom village and American Shoot that we're going to create a Christian Disney world full of happy, healthy families that live right and the kids grow up right. And we all do healthy, good, normal things. And you would have like little examples. You can see inside here they have little examples of uh, little models of that. Uh, yeah. Here we're... your brother's one of his signs are right there. You can see his face on it. Um, On that turquoise sign right there. Uh, The Million Dollar Club. Just send a million dollars and you can be part of the Million Dollar Club. And there's a plaque on the walls right here where you get to put your name for giving a million dollars. Uh, And we're just taught to constantly Get him money. Get him money. If we didn't, we would have to be Hollywood. We would have to not eat. We would have to uh, sit in isolation. We would ha- we would be exposed to the other kids hating on us, shaming us. And this building was the building where they would bring all the the big league money people to to try to convince them how great this place was. So the kid, they would send some kids out here to play basketball to make it look normal. Mm. Um, why they had some donors, some people donating money to see what a great place this was. And you could see that there was, they always had security guards. One of the main things I also want to let you know, Jen, In the chapel in here, he had a steel plate behind him built into the walls of the chapel because he thought he was going to get shot in the back of the head. He thought for sure people were coming to get him. He was so paranoid. He had steel plates and bodyguards with him because he he was wanted for screwing over people for so much money. That they're in the, behind the church pulpit. He had a steel plate put in so he wouldn't get shot in the back of the head, and he had a gun mm. behind there, and he had also a bodyguard. So, to children, <laughs> that looks larger than life. Even to was some there parents. any?
1: <clears throat> sorry, was there any known attempts on his life?
0: I'm sorry. Can you repeat that?
1: Was there any known attempts on his life during the period he was in power? I never
0: saw it. He would make claims. He would would tell stories. I don't know if he was just mentally ill or just wanted to scare us. Or if maybe he really did borrow money from the wrong people and they were coming after him. But, as far as what I saw personally, I can't tell you that anybody who came after him ever. It, you know, looking back at it now, it just seems like a scared man that trick tried to trick everybody and was knew he was doing wrong things and just was very paranoid because he knew it was finally gonna catch up to him. But I mean. Maybe there was things going on that I didn't know because she was constantly traveling, living lavish lifestyles, you know, and we were in a dorm with the walls crumbling and it cold and freezing. I mean, we're in upstate New York, right by Canada. So this is a very cold area. There gets a lot of snow here. There's a couple of these signs so uh,
1: freedom village
0: say, at the end there's like like a little thing down here it says 800 victory today freedom village um, but that was just a scheme to try to, to try to um. You know, to try to bring in more bunny that he had us doing.
1: Yes, second. please do. And thank you for showing, you know, showing the audience around something, you know, so horrific and, and I'll, personal I'll to yourself. You i
2: right, right back when
0: I'm in the car.
1: Yep, okay? no problem. And we're going to sign out. Thank you, Danielle.
0: Thank you, Dan. I'll talk Let to you it's where i can hear you better and the problem right. is there okay give
1: me one second no problem and yeah i'd like to, to hear sort of what you were were just um saying at the end there if you could repeat that when the signal's a little bit better because it was a bit crackly where you're out and about thank
0: you for no, thank you. Using everything and having um you know uh, inviting me to share my story and my experience and my, my hope and I—I'm I, glad
1: I made a new friend. And so, that I, you certainly I'm have. Thank you, and, you. and thank you to Brendan as well, guys. You're great. All right. right, I will see you well, later. I'll, I'll give you a message. Me. message me. Yep,
0: thank and you. you all the, the world, you're
1: absolutely from
0: inside and out.
1: Thank. You. Oh, thank you. You are too, right. honestly. Thank you. thank you. I'll speak to you later. Take it easy. Bye-bye.
0: Right. Go relax and enjoy the rest of your, your
1: night. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Bye you bye too. Bye-bye. Tell,
0: tell Sean I said I he's going to have a beautiful baby coming soon.
1: It is. is. Oh, I will. I will. Thank you, guys. I'll, I'll see you later. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you later. Bye-bye. This podcast is sponsored by Gadfly Press. We are proud to announce the publication of The Girl Gambler. A young woman's story of her escape from gambling addiction. The story of a young girl's entrapment in gambling addiction. The true advert for problem gambling and how it controlled her every movement, every thought and almost took her life. How the guilt and shame that go hand in hand with addiction stopped her from reaching out for help for eight years as she didn't feel it was okay for a young female to be a problem gambler. How she believed it was a male-dominated problem and how eventually she did find the tools that enabled her to become free of her addiction.
2: Available worldwide on Amazon. Link in the description box below this video. Thank you for supporting our sponsor.